Amen. Amen. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Good morning, y'all. My only in the south do you hear good morning, y'all. Um, I am uh, so thankful that y'all are here today, whether you're here uh, physically here or watching on YouTube or Facebook or this may be next Thursday, but you're here because you're watching next Thursday online. Anyway, um, lots of places you could be, but God's got you here for a reason. I believe we don't serve a God of randomness, so you're here for a reason, and I believe that he's got a message that, assuming hopefully prayerfully I don't mess up his message, that will impact us and impact our community today. Um, again, my name's Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm one of, one of the pastors uh, on the staff here at Church on the Trail. December 22nd, I think. Yeah, December 22nd, 1820. So that is, who's the mathematician? How many years ago is that? A lot. A couple, <laughs> couple of hundred years ago. December 22nd, 1820, at the, it was at the Bicentennial Celebration, which is a, it was the 200-year anniversary of the founding of, of Plymouth, 1820, end of the year 1820. A guy named Daniel Webster said this. It's going to be on the screen. should be on the screen. Yeah. Now, this is, this is King James language. This is not scripture, but it's Daniel Webster wrote it. But it's, it's, it's not that easy to understand because it's old English. But let me read this to you. This is what Daniel Webster wrote. 200th year celebration of the Mayflower landing in 1620. He said, finally, let us not forget the religious character of our origin. Our fathers were brought hither. Raise your hand if you use the word hither in the last seven days. Y'all are liars. <laughs> our fathers were brought hither. I'm not even sure what it means. By their high veneration for Christianity. They, Christianity was upheld in just incredible esteem. He said, they journeyed by its light and labored in its hope. They sought to incorporate its principles with the elements of their society and to diffuse its influence through all of their institutions, civil, political, or literary. He said, let us cherish these sentiments and extend this influence still more widely in the full conviction that that is the happiest society which partakes in the highest degree of the mild and peaceful spirit of Christianity. Okay, 1820. Now I want you to back up 200 years from then to the Mayflower, 1620. I want you to imagine 100 plus, I think there were 102 people on board the, the Mayflower. They were anchored in Plymouth Bay up the, in New England, up the, new, uh, the, the east, northeastern coast of the United States. Pragmatically, these people were in covenant relationship with each other. They were in covenant relationship with each other, and together they were in covenant with, with God. So the founders of our, of our great country, they understood the power of covenant. That's another word that we really don't use that much. I do when I'm doing premarital counseling, because the, a marriage between a man and a woman is a, cov it's a covenant relationship. And so these people, they understood covenant. Why is it they understood covenant? Because they understood the Bible. They understood what a covenant relationship was because they understood Scripture. They knew that the God that they professed faith and belief and trust in was a promise keeper. He was a promise keeper. And that he would act according to his word. God does not lie. God is a promise keeper and he acts according to his word. And, and 
part of that, we need to, in our covenant relationship with him, be obedient to his word. So those pilgrims, they landed in this, this harsh land. You know, it's four or 500 years ago. They landed in the, in the really nasty middle of winter. They had been persecuted in England for their beliefs, exiled into Holland. They were in Holland for 12 years uh, before they landed on the New England coast to begin a colony for what reason? What reason did they land on our shores? It was for the glory of God. That's not Ed making that up. They landed for the glory of God. They came here for the glory of God. So before setting foot on the beach, they're in the boat, the Mayflower. They were compelled, and I believe they were divinely compelled to pen a written covenant. Author Marshall Foster, he wrote this. He said, they knew that they could not launch their colony until there was a recognition of God's sovereignty and their need to obey him. So they couldn't, and they didn't know they were founding America. They, they didn't know that. They, they came on a mission trip. They came for the glory of God. But they knew they couldn't do anything until they acknowledged God's sovereignty, until they committed to obeying his word. And so the Mayflower Compact, if y'all have heard of that, and you should have heard of that if you went to school, the Mayflower Compact is the result, and it was written in the captain's quarters in the Mayflower before they touched the beach, before they, they got in a little rowboat or something and, and, and landed. And so at the very beginning of the Mayflower Compact, the very first words say, in the name of God, amen. It talks about the grace of God. It states that their purpose for being there was the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. And if you think it wasn't a mission trip, you're deluded. And if you were taught in school that it wasn't a mission trip, you're deluded because their words were that it was for the advancement of the Christian faith. That's why they came to this country. And they they covenanted and they combine when they combine them, their, themselves together, they say that they did that in the presence of God. And so you see there the birth of our nation. And what you see with those people, 102 people, you see that they were unified, you see that they were unafraid, and you see that they were unselfish. They were unified, they were unafraid, and they were unselfish. Well, how could that be? How could that be? Brutal times. Well, how could they be unified? How could they be unafraid? How could they be unselfish? And the answer is that they were absolutely sure. They were absolutely convinced beyond all doubt that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that they were playing their role in fulfilling the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and Acts 1-8 to be his witnesses. They had no doubt that that was their role. And they were divinely compelled to do that. Well, that brings me to the last part of Acts chapter 4. We were in, we've been in the, in the book of Acts for a couple of months now, and we're in chapter 4 now. We, we were in chapter 4 last week, and we're toward the latter, we're at the end of Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32. And this is, you know, when is this? This is right on the heels of Pentecost. And if you remember, what, is the, what, is, what happened at Pentecost? Christ's church was born. You see the birth of the church. And we see his people, Christ's people, his church, the body of Christ. We see them unified, we see them unafraid, and we see them unselfish. 
verse 32, all the many believers were in one heart and soul, and no one claimed any of his possessions for himself, but everyone shared everything he had. With great power, with just some little old measly power, say no. With great power, the emissaries, the apostles, continued testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Yahshua, the Lord Jesus, and they were all held in high regard. No one among them was poor. Hold that thought. Did that, does that say half of them were poor? No, it says no one. Well, what does no one mean? No one. No one among them was poor since those who owned lands or houses sold them and turned over the proceeds to the emissaries, to the apostles, to distribute to each according to his need. Does that say his wants? No, no, no. It says his need. Thus, Yosef, whom the emissaries called, called Barnabas, that's Barnabas, which means the extorter or the ex extorter, the exhorter, sorry about that, guys, the encourager, he was a Levite, and he was from Cyprus. That guy sold a field which belonged to him and brought the money to the emissaries. So first thing we see is that God's people are unified. If you don't have a worship guide, too, raise your hand because I want to get one in your hand. There's just two or three fill in the blanks. So we see that they're unified. What does verse 32 says? It says all of them were in, in, in one heart and soul. The early church, because again, this is right at the birth of the church, they were spiritually, they were in sync. They were a cohesive together body. They were, they were cohesive in heart and mind and body and spirit and soul. Their whole being, everything that made them who they were, was they were at one with other believers. There was unity, there was harmony, there was loyalty, there was commitment, and there was a love for God's word. The book of Acts tells us they submitted to the apostles' teaching. And what were the apostles' teaching? It was the word of God. It was a, a risen Christ. And so they, they loved together, they loved God's word. And all of that, that loyalty, that commitment, all that was underneath the umbrella of the cross. And so remember now, we're not talking about a couple dozen people anymore. We're talking about thousands of Christ followers. Remember, you had a few thousand that got saved at Pentecost. You had five or 10,000 that got saved at Solomon's Colonnade. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Plus, however many others there were that are not written about in Scripture. So it was a bunch. And it was a special, special, special time. So how can that many people that happened really that fast, how is it that they can be unified? Because what does scripture says? They were in one heart and soul. Well, those early believers, those early Christians, they gave their heart and soul to Jesus' lordship and mission. Lordship. It's another word you don't hear much. You don't hear that much in, in church. You should, but you don't. And they gave themselves to his lordship. We're going to talk about lordship in a minute but to his lordship and to his mission. And they believed. And I mean, they, they, they really believed. They believed in their heart and they believed in, in their mind and they believed in their spirit that Jesus had died, had really died for their sin, had really died to pay that penalty for their sin because the sin's got to be paid for, that he had really risen from the dead, that he really went in the grave dead and he really came out alive, that he had been exalted to the right hand of the Father because it was only just a few weeks earlier that that actually happened. They saw him 
ascend into heaven. They really believed that he had commissioned them to go and to reach people and to help people and to love on people. They really believed that he was coming back and he was going to reward people, Christians, Christ followers, for being faithful to that mission and for ministering to the world and leading people to him. You know, Jenny said it when she uh, did the little welcome this morning. We exist to help people find their way back to God and grow. That's why we exist. And the truth is that's why every Christ follower, every person that professes his name, that's why we should live. That, that is our mission. That's fulfilling uh, Matthew 28 and the beginning of Acts, Acts 1-8. They were all in on the fact that it took all of them locking arms together and working together to fulfill that the way that God designed it to be fulfilled. So Jesus became, he became their life and he became their will. He, be, he was their purpose and he was their mission. He was their all in all, to use that phrase. They understood what lordship meant. And it meant the surrender of all one is and all one has so that the whole world may know that Jesus Christ is Lord. They submitted everything they were and everything they had so that the whole world may know that Jesus is Lord and that the whole world can live for eternity with him. Y'all, if a football team is unified, sort of the way Georgia was last night, I had to say that. I had to say that. If you're a Clemson fan, I'm sorry. You played a good game. It just wasn't good enough. But if a football team is, is unified, it doesn't mean that everybody's playing the same position. You know, that's not at all what it means. Like everybody's got the same job. No, it, that's not what it means. It means that everybody is headed towards the same goal line. Together, they're heading towards the same goal line. If an orchestra is just is just in sync. It's not because they're all playing the same instrument. It's because they're playing the same song. If our worship team is, is in great harmony and it sounds good and there's worship and there's hands going up, just like it was just a little while ago, right? It's not because they're, they're all singing the same parts or they're playing the same parts. No, they're adding their part to the same song. And God blesses that. He blesses when we all play our role or play our part, and we're not all the same. We're not all wired up the same. We don't have the same emotions. We don't have the same experiences. And Lord knows we don't have the same gifts and talents and abilities, right? But all together, when we're each adding our little part, playing, fulfilling our role that God designed for us. Ed didn't design his role. God did. He had to drag Ed kicking and screaming, right? But when we all play that role, it works. There's a shocker, y'all. Is that a shocker that, that it works? If we do it God's way, it works. Listen, unity is not sameness. Being unified is not sameness. Unity has to do with same purpose. Just like the band, just like a football team, just like the church. Every church, every local body of Christ. We all really ultimately have the same purpose. 
And so if all of us are going, because what does Matthew 28 tell us? Go. He says, go. Go and make disciples. So if all of us are going, and, and look, my going and your going probably don't look the same, right? But if we're all going and we're going together, if what, what, what's happening in that, in that unity among the goers, just the natural result is being unified. Because we're all, I say it all the time about locking arms. And maybe that's figurative most of the time, but sometimes it ain't figurative. We are literally locking arms together and going to play our role to make disciples. So God's people are unified, number one. Number two, God's people are unafraid. Remember in verse 30, uh, 33, I said, with great power, with great power, the emissaries, with great power, the apostles continued testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Yahshua, and they were all held to the Lord Jesus. They were all held in high regard. And you're probably thinking, wait a minute, that joker disregarded the last part of verse 32, which said, and no one claimed any of his possessions for himself, but everybody shared everything they had. I didn't, I didn't disregard it. Keep it in your mind, I'm coming back to it. Because you're probably saying that's a difficult subject. Well, not, 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 so, not so much. We're going to come back to it. So God's people are unafraid. Look at verse 33 again. With great power, the emissaries continued testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and they were all held in high regard. Y'all, there are several principles that we use when we read and when we study and when we, when we interpret Scripture. And we're going to talk about that at, at this conference that we're having at the end of September is how to study the Bible conference. If you can stick that slide up there. Um, and I encourage y'all so much to come to this. It's going to be excellent. And we've already got, I think, 35 or 36, maybe 37 people registered over the last week. Come, it's, we're not studying the Bible. We're going to talk about how to study the Bible. We're going to talk about something I'm going to talk about in just a second. Different principles on what we do when we read and when we study and when we, when we interpret Scripture. So, And you can register at churchonthetrail.org slash events and just register. We'll have dinner Friday night. We'll have uh, breakfast Saturday morning. There's child care. It'll be a great time. So I encourage you to come. Anyway, a major principle as we study Scripture is observation. Noticing and recognizing things in the Bible. Two of those principles, those observation principles, are recognizing things that Scripture emphasizes and recognizing things that Scripture that's repeated in Scripture. With great power, verse 33. With great power, the Bible says. You see, I got it circled up there. This is the Holy Spirit's power. This is not the apostles' power. What did Peter and John say when the guy at the at the beautiful gate was healed. It wasn't them. It wasn't their power. It was, it was the power of the Lord. This is Holy Spirit power that we're talking about, that Luke's talking about. And so up to this point in Acts, about four chapters, the Holy Spirit and, the, and, and its power is mentioned no less than ten times. The Bible said that it is through His power that they continue to witness that they continue to testify, not, not because they're great speakers, not because they're great preachers, not because they're great men, but, but because the Holy Spirit has filled them up. The Holy Spirit has filled them up with his power. You know, I've told you all many, many times, I think I even said it when I first started today, my prayer is, Lord, don't let me, every Sunday, don't let me mess up what you got going on. 
Because it ain't no Ed. It's the Holy Spirit. If it's Ed, Ed'll mess it up, right? Does that make sense? Say yeah, thank you. So, so the Bible says it's through the Holy, through the power of the Holy Spirit that they be, continue to witness. They continue to testify. Holy Spirit gives them the power to be to to display godly courage, to display holy boldness. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers them to be effective witnesses for Christ, and they're being a witness for this Jesus who what? They're testifying to the what of the Lord. What's the Bible say? It says they're they're continually testifying that the dead man walked out of the grave. They're continually testifying over and over and over that about this resurrected Jesus. And so again, up until this point in Acts, about four chapters, his being raised is mentioned about 10 times. So what that tells me, because I'm, I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I know that if something is emphasized and something is repeated, that that's an important concept, that that's an important event, that that's an important an important issue. So the Holy Spirit's power and the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is super important to all of our lives. So the power that you and I receive through the filling of the Holy Spirit allows us to be fearless. It allows us to be fearless. Like I'm refused to live in fear. You know, even with this COVID stuff, y'all, I'm not licking the doorknobs after church. Like, I'm not letting people spit in my face. I'm not being stupid, but I'm not going to live in the closet scared to death either. I'm not going to do it because there's work to be done. And I'm not talking about busy work. I'm talking about people are dying lost in the street and going to hell. There is work to be done. We all have a role to play in the fulfillment of his commission. We, we, we do. So these people are unafraid. And number three, lastly, these people, God's people, are unselfish. Look at the last part of verse 33. I think I've got the whole verse up there, don't I? Yeah. So it says, with great power, the emissaries continued testifying about the resurrection of the Lord. And they were, think about it, and they were all held in high regard. So you have the source, this great power. You have the source, and then you have the action, the testify, the source of the action. The, the Holy Spirit empowers them to do what? To testify about the risen Christ. And now you begin to see a result. They were held in high regard. Other translations, your translation may say great grace was upon them. God's favor was upon them. With great power, they continued to testify about the resurrection and God's favor was, was upon them. And so I didn't, told you that I wasn't going to forget about verse 32. I'd get back to it. Verse 32, right above that, all the many believers were in one heart and soul and no one claimed any of his possessions for himself, but everybody shared everything he had. And so they were held in high regard. They experienced God's favor, but they also experienced the favor of together, the favor of people, the favor of their neighbors, the favor of their family. So it's God's favor, God's grace, but they were also held in high regard by the people that, that saw them. So God worked powerfully among them to empower their witness and to meet material needs. I mean, Jesus told his disciples, I think it was in John 20, 
that your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. The world will know that you are mine by the way you treat each other. The world will know that you're mine when they see the love that you have for one another. The world will know that you're mine when they see the way you speak to one another. When you're kind, joyful, gentle, you have self-control. That's the way the world knows that you're a Christ follower. If you're out there acting like a fool and then you profess to know Jesus, the world says, I don't want nothing to do with all that. If that's, I, count me out. But when the world sees us loving on one another and hugging on one another and serving one another, like that, 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 that's attractive. People, when people see that, they're, they're drawn to him. They're drawn to him. Listen, church hurt. Some of you may have suffered from church hurt. Church hurt does not have an effect on whether Jesus walked out of the grave alive or not. Church hurt is the effect of Genesis 3. Church hurt is the effect of we live in a fallen world. We live in a sinful world. Now, I'm not justifying ugliness between Christ followers. And obviously, the bar is kindness. The bar is the fruit of the Spirit. That's the way that we should treat each other. The world should hold us in high regard. The world should not hold us in contempt. Other Christ followers should not hold us in contempt because we act stupid. Try not to act stupid. I mean, I, that's not, like, y'all, that's not rocket science. Will we act stupid? Will I hurt you? I sure don't want to. I remember like it was yesterday with both of my sons when I said something and acted like an, an utter fool. But it was a teaching moment when I could say, Zach and Will, don't put me up on no pedestal. I will let you down. This is the first time, and it was pretty horrific, honestly. I said, this is the first time. Unfortunately, it's probably not the last time. And so I apologize. It ain't the easiest thing as a grown man to apologize to a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old. But, but I did. So we're fallen, broken, sinful people. And that's what happens. But be grown up enough and Christian enough to own it. To own it. And be kind to one another. You know, as the outside world, back back up to Acts 4. As the outside world saw these believers' generosity with one another. They saw their care for the needy together with one another. They saw their power, powerful witness. They were drawn to this Jesus that they professed to believe in because that's attractive. Like we don't need to add something to Jesus to make him more attractive. Walk the talk and there, there's attraction in that. So it wasn't just their, their verbal witness. It, it was visible in their walk. It was visible in their attitude. It was visible in the way they spoke to each other. It was visible in their behavior. It was visible in their doing. They were witnessing through their doing. Yes, people need to hear the gospel, but they need to see the gospel as well. And so this early church was, they were able to share possessions and property as the result of the unity that was brought about by the Holy Spirit working in and through their lives. Now, don't flip out on me 
Because this way of living is not communism. It's different than communism. It's not socialism. And socialism's end game is communism, by the way. It's not that at all. Why is it not that? Because their sharing was voluntary. Their sharing was voluntary. It did, and, it, and their sharing, it didn't involve all of their private property. It involved as much as was needed. The Bible says as much as is needed. And it was not some... It was not some membership requirement in order to be part of the church, like come to Life Track 101 to learn how to be part of Church on the Trail, and we got a big box in front, and I need all your stuff to go in the box. No, that's not the way it was then, and that's not the way that it is now. The spiritual unity and the generosity of these early believers attracted other people to them. That structure that they had, that structure that we see in Acts chapter 4, and we even saw it at the end of Acts chapter 2. That structure is not a biblical command, but that structure offers us really some principles, some, some important principles to follow. I want to give you some of those. Those early believers, they did not insist on owning property. Did they have a right to own property? Everybody together say yes. Of course they did. They had liberty in Christ. Of, they were not compelled to not own property, but they didn't insist on owning property. None of them counted his stuff as his own stuff. He didn't. She didn't. The early believers didn't trust in their riches. They didn't trust in their material possessions. They, the early believers didn't take from other people. They didn't glory in their possessions. And they didn't hoard stuff away. But all of that was voluntary. All of they did it. Why? They did it because of Jesus. Okay? And they truly believed. They truly were bought into the lordship of Christ. They truly were bought into uh, in the inheritance of eternal life with Christ. They truly believed that there was a reward for faithfulness to Christ, not a material reward, not like, ooh, let me come up to the cross and give my life to Christ, and when I go outside, there'll be a new Mercedes-Benz in the driveway, you know, with a, my, the keys to my new car. No, that's not, no, that's not what it was. They truly believed in denying self. You want to know something that you don't hear preached much? Denying self. Denying self. Sacrifice. Here's a truism. Sacrifice is not sacrifice if there's no sacrifice. Does that make sense? Look on, if you got a worship guide, look at the first page on the cover of the worship guide. It's one of our values at Church on the Trail. And what does it say? It's right there. It says, we, together as the body, we go all in for God because he went all in for us. We give up things we love for things we love more. That's sacrifice. It's not sacrifice if I give something up I don't care anything about. Like, don't fool yourself into thinking about that. Well, I gave up chicken liver for a month. I hate chicken liver, right? I give up Chick-fil-A for a month? That's a sacrifice, y'all. So sacrifice is not sacrifice if there ain't no sacrifice. Lock that little saying into your, into your mind. So they were bought into denying self. They were bought into forsaking all for Christ. They were bought into to loving others sacrificially. 
and they genuinely believed and they genuinely acknowledged that God is the source of everything and that God owns everything. That early church believed that their very existence was, was to serve Christ by serving others. You want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Serve others, you're serving him. That the, that the blessing of material possessions was for helping other people. There's no compulsion not to have, not own anything. But the point of, 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 and the blessing of possessions is to help other folks. Since none of those first century believers, since none of them felt like their stuff was their stuff, that they owned stuff, they were able to give, they were able to, to share. And the Bible says they were able to eliminate extreme poverty among them. Those with plenty, it's not hard, those with plenty help those in need. Let me ask you this, this is a legit question. And I can't answer it for you. I can answer it for myself. It's a legit question. How do you feel, and this is not in your worship guide, but I would encourage you to write it down. How do I feel about my possessions? Feelings are real. So how do I feel about my possessions. How do I view my stuff? Whose is it? Who, whose is it? Go in your house and open the closets up. Whose stuff is that? How many pairs of shoes do you have? How many pairs of shoes do you have? You know, I believe that all of us should have the attitude that everything we have belongs to God. Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verse 1, written about um, 4,200 or so years ago. It says, the earth is the Lord's. It's not going to be on the screen. It says, the earth is the Lord's with all that is in it. The world and those who live there. Does it say the earth is the Lord's and some of the stuff in it? It says everything. The earth and everything is owned by the Lord. Everything comes from him and everything should be used for what? For his glory. Why did they land at Plymouth Bay? For the glory of God. Why did they do anything that they did? For the glory of God. Why should we get up at, for the glory of God? Everything we do should be for the glory of God. I want to give you a super practical point. Unless those of us that have, and I get that like, what does that even mean, those of us that have? Well, I can't define that. I mean, there's no way for me to define that. You got to define that for you. But I would suspect that all of us sitting in here would fall into the bucket of have, that we have. And so unless those of us that have, listen, I'm talking about a radical shift today in the way that we think. I'm talking about radical giving. I'm talking about radical provision. I'm talking about radical generosity, sacrificial generosity. I'm not going to go down this road, but you remember the widow and her mite, M-I-T-E, that she flipped into the bucket in the temple. It was everything she had. She gave everything she had. She was bought in to the mission, and she gave everything. It was sacrificial generosity. And so if we don't do it, 
Who's going to do it? It's the same question I asked you about witnessing a couple of weeks ago. I said, if we don't do it, who's going to do it? If we as his followers don't do it, who will? Like if we don't, the hungry are going to continue to starve. The cold are going to continue to freeze. The unsheltered will continue to be uh, suffer from exposure. The uneducated will continue to be ignorant. The diseased will continue to wither away. Now we can and we have abdicated that to the government. We can. We could do that. That's what's happened in the last hundred years. But most importantly in this list of who, if we don't do it, who will, is that the lost will continue to die without Christ. They will continue to die without Christ if we as believers don't do it. And I tell you this, honestly, there are business men and women and their leaders who have the ability and have the know-how to meet the desperate needs of the world. Sorrow, suffering, pain, and unnecessary deaths could be eliminated by just some of the world's leaders if they would just surrender their lives to Christ. All they are and all they have if they put themselves under the lordship of Christ and get to work. I want to remind you all of a passage in Luke chapter 16. Same guy that wrote the book of Acts. Starts in verse 19. I want you to listen to this. Dr. Luke says, once there was a, was a rich, it was Jesus' words. Once there was a rich man who used to dress in the most expensive clothing and he spent his days in magnificent luxury at his gate. Let's read it here. Used to dress in the most expensive clothing and spend his days in magnificent luxury. At his gate had been laid a beggar named Eleazar, which is Lazarus. Lazarus is covered with sores. He's a beggar. He would have been glad to eat the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. Now, I want you all to think about that, that word glad. Overwhelmed with joy is what that word means. Just to have some of the scraps that fall from the rich man's table. But instead, even the dogs would come and lick his sores. Flip that. In time, the beggar died and was carried away. Lazarus, uh, the beggar died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. That's Abraham's side. Well, the rich man also died and was buried in Sheol, which is hell, where he was in torment. It's not a pleasant place. Torment. Look that word up. Agony. He was in torment. The rich man looks up and saw Abraham far away with Eleazar, with Lazarus at his side, and he calls out. Okay? The rich man is calling out. Father Abraham, take pity on me. And send Lazarus just, just to, to dip the tip of his finger in water. Just to dip the tip of his finger in water. Flip it. Good. Why, why the tip of his finger in water? Just to cool my tongue. He's like, I am in agony. What does he say? I am in agony in this fire. What are those? That's the fire of hell, y'all. That's what that is, fire of hell. However, Abraham said, son, and who's he talking to? 
He's talking to the rich man, right? He says, son, remember that when you were alive, you got all the, quote, good things. At least you thought you got the good things. While he, Lazarus, got the bad. But now he gets his consolation here while you are the one in agony. That sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Yet that isn't all. He says, between you and us is a deep rift, a chasm, a long distance, an unconquerable distance. A deep rift has been established so that those who would like to pass, the folks that would, would like to pass, from here to there can't, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house. Think about that. A rich man said, I beg you to send Lazarus. Send him to my father's house. I got five brothers. Warn those brothers so that they can be spared having to come to this place where, where I'm in torment and agony and burning. I don't want them there. But Abraham said they have Moisha and the prophets. Moisha and the prophets. Think about that. What is he saying there? Moisha and the prophets. That's Moses and the prophets. That's the scripture. They got the Pentateuch. They got the word. They got all these prophets, the Jeremiah and Isaiah and Micah and all the prophets. They got the Bible. And what does he say? What does Abraham say? They ought to listen to them. However, he said, no, Father Abraham, no. They need more. They got the Bible. You got a Bible? If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We got a Bible. You got the word. I would imagine all of us can read. So he says, tell them to take a look at Moses and the prophets. So he says to him, he says, no, 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 they need more. If somebody from the dead can go to them, they'll repent. But he replied, if they won't listen to Moshe and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if somebody is raised from the dead. Y'all, Jesus says that this rich man is in torment, in agony, in hell, because indulgence, extravagance, hoarding, and neglecting the needs of others got between and kept him from coming to know the Lord. There is no hope for this man, y'all. There is no such thing as purgatory. I don't care if the Catholic Church lays a lot of weight on purgatory. This is not purgatory. That joker is in hell. You can't buy him out. There's no third kind of place where we can go and somebody can buy him out. It don't work that way. No, he died lost. He died with what kind of heart? Was it hard or was it soft? He died with a hard heart. He died lost. And that's what happens, y'all, when you, when, you, when you die lost. Like, it makes me cry, y'all, to think about the people that die lost and with a hard heart. Hell is not some fantasy that, that people make up. Heaven is not some fantasy that people make up to make you feel good. That's, that's just not the way it works. It is real. It is real. Both are real. Make no bones about it. That guy died with a hard heart. Think of it like this. You got, uh, you got one of God's children, one of God's precious children, starving children, leaning against the outside wall of a building, starving, sprawled out, leaning against that wall. 
And then you got a guy on the other side of the wall inside who absolutely has the ability, who absolutely has the opportunity to do something about it. And yet he refuses to help. He holds back, he stores up, he banks, and he invests his his money for him to get more and more and more and more. And all the while, on the other side of that wall, sprawled out laying against that, one of God's children starves and starves and starves and dies. What is it that blinds that man that's on the other side of that wall? What is it that blinds him to the need? What is it that, that, that blinds him into buying the lie that sin can be overlooked? God's starving child in Luke 16, Lazarus dies because of this guy's greed. And he just thinks it's no big deal. It's just like the people, the beggar at the beautiful gate that was there for 40 years, people just kind of sidestepping, you know. The stuff happens to us every day. Go downtown Columbus, walk on the Riverwalk. Let me sidestep him. He's kind of dirty. I don't want to talk to him. I don't want to hug on him. I don't want to love on him. He's just begging for money. He's sorry he needs to get a job. Maybe he does need to get a job. How about help him find a job? How about when he asks you for $10 because he's hungry, you say, no, how about if we go over to Burger King and I'll buy you a triple Whopper and a large fry? And you, and you break bread with him. And you start a relationship with him. And then you share Jesus with him if he doesn't know, if he doesn't know Christ. Don't be sidestepping. Like, I think I pulled a hamstring. Don't be sidestepping. That, that's not what we're called to do as Christ followers. We're not sidesteppers. Ministry's messy. The cross was extremely messy. Get in the fray. Get in the fray. So when we... and and And... And this rich guy just acts like it's no big deal. And scripture tells us that he was held accountable and he was severely judged. So when we, you and I, submit, surrender to to Jesus' lordship, together we become one at following him and doing his will. And his life and his mission become our life and our mission. And when this happens, the the spirit of God kind of provides a supernatural love. It's not a natural love. Because it doesn't really come naturally. It's a supernatural love and it's a supernatural bond with other believers. And one of the results of that love and one of the results of that bond is that we become unselfish. And maybe it's incremental baby steps like, I don't know, here's your made up word of the day. Hashtag unselfisher. Maybe we become unselfisher over time. I know I'm way more unselfish than I was 15 years ago. I think that's part of God's growth in us. Verse 34, no one among them was poor. Since those who owned lands or houses sold them and turned over the proceeds to the apostles to distribute to each according to his need. Thus Yosef, whom the emissaries called Barnaba, Barnabas, which means the exhorter, a Levine, a native of Cyprus, sold a field which belonged to him and brought the money to the emissaries, their generosity was so significant. Verse 34 says that none of them were poor. Y'all, that's a strong statement. That's a strong statement. The government cannot end homelessness. You know how many times I've read this report that Columbus did 
15 years ago, the plan to eradicate homelessness. Let me tell y'all, if a secular entity is going to take the job that's the church's job, it ain't going to work. It is ours to do. It's not, does that make sense? Now, I'm, these are harsh words, but it is, it is the church's role and the church's job. And so it's a strong statement that's made in those last couple of verses. They gave beyond their own necessities. And again, this is not socialism. They figured out what they needed. Does that make sense? Nobody told them what they needed. Some, some external authority, some governmental authority didn't say, Ed, let me tell you what you need. I'm going to decide for you what. No. Ed, decide. I can't tell you what you need. You got to decide what you need. But each one of them did that. And beyond what they needed, they shared and they gave. And it included selling property. You get this example of Barnabas. Were they compelled to give? And I really am asking y'all's opinion. Were they compelled to give? Who says yes? Raise your hand. Who says no? I say they were compelled to give. But were they compelled by an earthly authority to give? Well, then what is it that compelled them to give? Love. The love of Christ compelled them to give. It was love that compelled them to stop hoarding away their stuff. They loved Jesus and they loved their brothers and their sisters. So they repented of the hoarding and the covetousness and the keeping up with the Joneses. I guess it would be the keeping up with the Goldsteinses. But they, 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 I don't know why that came out. But it was love that compelled that, right? So those of them in need got what those of them in need needed. And I believe there's always going to be people in need. And it's for a ton of different reasons. Too old, too young, too sick, too injured, too unemployed. They're orphaned, widowed, divorced, oppressed, brokenhearted, unskilled, uneducated. All of those things, like I don't know, there will always be a reason and there will always be people in need. Well, whose job, like if y'all leave here with one thing, whose job is it to take care of that list that I just gave you? Whose role is it? It is the role of the body of Christ. It is not the government's job. And they are too happy to step in and fulfill that role. And the problem is we've let them. We've abdicated that to the government. I'm not hating the government. Remember, somebody's got to do it. Well, who's going to do it better? Who's going to do it cheaper? Who's going to do it more efficiently? The body of Christ. Because we're playing our role together with our gifts and our talent and our, and our abilities. That's a, that's a message for another day. Suffice it to say, it's for us to take care and Luke gives us this real-life example of this dude named Barnabas. This guy that lays, sells his property and lays the money at the, at the apostles' feet. And his name, again, means son of exhortation. He's, he's the encourager. Barnabas is the encourager. He's an As we work through Acts in the coming months, you're going to see how important a role Barnabas plays. And he gives example after example of just dynamic faith. He's a dynamic example for us. Now, the last several weeks, we've walked through, through, through uh, Acts 3 and 4. I want to give you some stuff to take, to take home and to talk about with your children or your parents or your husband or your wife. 
And so for all the disconnects between the churches of today and the ones described here in Acts 4 and some in 2 and 3, effective Jesus-focused ministry still begs today for many of the same ingredients that they had a couple thousand years ago. Me and you, we need powerful prayer gatherings. They needed them and we need them. Waiting on the Lord and crying out to him for blessing. We, just like them, we need God to fill us up with his spirit. We need him to confirm his word in ways that give us holy boldness and courage, just like they did. We desperately need a spirit of mutual care and mutual concern for, for each other and for the community. We desperately need that that spirit of concern would manifest itself in sacrificial financial generosity so that needs can be met. Not that so we can be wealthy, so that needs can be met. Needs in our body and then needs out there in the, in the streets. We need powerful, just like they did, powerful and persuasive preaching of the gospel. They needed it. The Lord provided it through Peter and John and all those guys. We need that today. In churches across the world, persuasive and powerful preaching of the risen Christ. We need congregations that are filled up with sons and daughters of encouragement. Congregations across the world that are filled up with a bunch of Barnabases. Y'all, that's what we need. And yes, they made him their savior their leader, their forgiver, but you know what else? They made him their Lord. And I'm gonna tell you that sometimes and often when you, when you come to Christ and you make him your savior, he may not be your Lord right then and there because it doesn't come naturally to submit to someone. But when you read scripture and you hang out with your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you begin to understand God's word, you and I need to make him our Lord. We need to submit everything we are and everything we have to him. And you can't really do that unless he first is your savior. So I'm telling you, if you don't know him, he really did go in that grave dead and he really did come out alive. And, and all of that happened to take care of a penalty that was yours and mine. And, it, and, and the cross really was messy and it really was bloody and it really was ugly and it was beautiful at the same time. And his blood just washes me as clean and as white as snow. And so if you don't know him as your savior, he'll never be your Lord. And so the encouragement today is really, y'all, it is, got to want to inside to be saved and you just it's just so simple I believe that he died on the cross to pay my penalty and I believe that he walked out of that grave alive and Lord save me 
and he will save you. And then the encouragement on the other side of that is lock arms with believers somewhere. Would love if it was church on the trail. Somewhere lock arms with believers. In spite of historical church hurt, in spite of somebody said something mean, in spite of any of that, maybe even because of that, lock arms with other believers. Y'all pray with me. Lord, we love you today. And Lord, if there is anybody watching online or here that has a desire to say yes to your offer, Lord, let them just hear these words. I repent of my sin, turn away from it, turn towards you. Believe that you took care of that on the cross and was raised three days later. And Lord, let them cry out to you right now to save me. And we trust and we believe that you will do that because you are a promise keeper. And so Lord, we do, we love you. You are our Lord, you are our Savior, you are our leader, and you are our forgiver. And it is in your name we pray, amen. So I'm gonna tell you real quick, in the back, if you need prayer for any reason, and it may be for the reason I just said, but any reason, our prayer team will be back in that corner, would love to hug on you and pray with you.